Our Constitution is a document in which we, the people, tell the government what it is allowed to do. We, the people, are free. Welcome to Constitution Classroom here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. We are joined by Colonel John Eitzmo with the Foundation for Moral Law. Well, Colonel, we've had a pretty eventful election cycle, which wrapped up yesterday. I suppose uh, that's probably as good a place as any for us to, to launch today. Absolutely. I was in Florida Monday and Tuesday. I was speaking for a pre-election prayer session with a church in Bonita Springs, Florida on Monday night. Then Tuesday morning, they had a veterans breakfast, about 120 there. And I wondered, well, is this really election day? Is that the time to do this? And they thought, well, we think it's a good time because get all these veterans up and they'll go out and vote and hopefully they will vote the way they should. Anyway, so I got back here last night and we had Montgomery Corral and then I went to one of the election watch parties for a short time afterward and came home and tried to catch up with what's going on. But, you know, you and I are looking at this in a way from opposite perspectives, but another way from the same perspective. Opposite perspectives in the, you from the Northwest, I'm from the Southeast. So between the two of us, I think we have the country pretty well covered. And, but philosophically and politically and ideologically, I think we're very much on the same wavelength there. But anyway, what's your take from the Northwest right now? I understand that we've done quite well in Idaho, and but there are still things going on in Oregon. Do you know what's going on there? I'm not as familiar with what's going on in Oregon. I, I can tell you in Idaho that there there were high hopes that uh, Idaho would uh, regain or perhaps retain its conservative edge. Um, really, it 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 just stayed roughly the same. Uh, nothing nothing much changed. There are there are a couple of key uh, state legislative races that went to Republicans, but um, you know overall. That what was purported to be a, a red wave that was going to sweep through and at least slow the the juggernaut of uh, you know the, what the Democrats have been up to for the last couple of years uh, turned out to be more of, of kind of a trickle. So I, I don't see anything changing here significantly. What about in, in your neck of the woods? Well, I'll try to look at things from an overall perspective here. And yes, in Alabama, it was a Republican sweep, but... I think we see something of the same thing in Alabama that you see in some of the mountain states there, like Idaho and like Utah, and it doesn't seem like this is nearly as true in Wyoming, but when a party becomes dominant in the state, then people join that party and rise in politics in that party not because they hold to the ideology of the party, but because they see that as the vehicle to get ahead. Now, when I came to Alabama some 32 years ago, Alabama was still pretty much a Democrat state. But you had a lot of people that were in the Democrat party who were politically conservative, but that was this party you had to be in if you wanted to have a political future. Well, that has turned dramatically, and today, Outside of a few counties in Alabama, if you want to be involved politically and to win politically, you got to be a Republican. Every state office, we have, I believe there are 
nine state Supreme Court justices and six statewide elected Court of Civil Appeals and Court of Criminal Appeals justices. So 1521 statewide elected judges and justices. All of them are Republican. All of the state elected officials are Republican. Both of our senators are Republican. All of our congressmen, except one, are Republican. And all of them claim to be conservative. But a lot of people from blue states are just amazed when I tell them how difficult it is sometimes to get a good conservative bill passed through our legislature. And in other words, just having a Republican majority isn't necessarily a guarantee, even though in Alabama, and I would assume Idaho is very similar, that nearly all Republicans here are going to claim to be conservative. But anyway, you look around the nation here, and it's been billed as a disappointment for Republicans. The red wave that was going to sweep the nation did not take place, or so we are told. And to some extent, that is true. And I think we need to analyze some of the reasons why this may have happened and what lessons we can learn from this, both as conservative and as Republicans. But at any rate, let me begin by mentioning something about the Senate. And I haven't seen a single commentator mention this, but this is very important when we analyze what actually happened yesterday and also in the events leading up to yesterday. I remember once a political commentator described politics as a bunch of actors moving around in the dark on a screen, or on a stage, I should say, moving around in the dark so that nobody sees them. Nobody sees what they're doing. And then on election day, just for a brief moment, the light flashes on and you see the figures and where they are. The light then goes off. Everything moves in the dark for two more years. And then there's another flash. And then you see where things have moved in that two year period. But that's what's been going on here. But let's look at the Senate first. Now in the Senate, we have to remember that we don't reelect all 100 of our senators. They serve six year, roughly staggered terms. And so that means that roughly 33 and a third of them come up for election every two years. But occasionally there's gonna be a special election to fill an unexpired term and so on. Anyway, so this year we had only 34 seats up for regular election which is normal, 33 to 34. And then we had one special election that was in Oklahoma and Senator Inhofe, a Republican in Oklahoma had resigned. And anyway, so this was an election to fill the unexpired term of his seat as well as to fill the other seat as well. So Oklahoma actually had two elections. So we have a total of 30, five Senate elections this last term. Now, Republicans start with a disadvantage because they were on the defense. Of these 35 seats, 21 were held by Republicans, meaning Republicans had to defend 21 seats. 
Democrats only had 14 of these seats, meaning they only had to defend 14 seats. So this was a good opportunity for Democrats to make gains in the Senate and for Republicans to sustain losses. But let's look at what happened so far. So far, we have either 19 or 20 seats won by Republicans. I say 19 or 20 because the counts that I'm seeing in the last hour or so are now generally saying that Senator Ron Johnson of Wisconsin has won re-election. I'm not sure everybody has conceded his victory there, but it appears that he has won. And if so, then Republicans have won 20 seats. Democrats have won only 12 seats. So just on paper, that would seem like Republicans have done very well. And then you've got three undecided seats. Arizona, where Republicans are behind, but interestingly, after all the denial of election fraud and everything, about 40% of the voting machines in Maricopa County, which is the Phoenix area, and apparently a pretty strong area for Republicans. Shortly after the election started yesterday, about 40% of the machines were not working. And so they've had to extend the time. So there are still votes yet to be counted out of that county and others throughout the state too. But what started in Arizona as a pretty substantial Democrat lead is gradually shrinking. Carrie Lake, the Republican candidate for governor, is now running something in excess of 49% to 50, just barely 50% for the Democrat. So she has been gaining throughout the morning hours, as has Blake Masters. He's a little bit behind Kerry Lake, but he's also been gaining. And so those are seats where there could be a, a change in the makeup of the Senate there. Nevada, there you have a very possible, in fact, I might even go so far as to say a fairly likely Republican pickup with Adam Laxalt. He is running ahead. There are still some votes to be counted, some of which may be from Democrat areas. Also, the Republican governor there seems to be running even ahead of Laxalt, but that appears to be a pickup, just as Arizona could be a pickup for the Senate and a hold for the governorship. And then we have Georgia. Now, the Republican governor of Georgia has been reelected by a pretty substantial margin, but it appears right now that the Georgia Senate race between Ralph Warnock and Herschel Walker, that this is going to go to a runoff. Unlike most other states in Arizona, I'm sorry, in Georgia, if nobody gets a majority, there has to be a runoff. As of the last count that I've seen, the Democrat Warnock was slightly ahead, but did not have enough to have a clear majority. And so it looks like there's going to be a runoff, which I guess will take place, I think they're saying, in, in December. I might just comment there that one of the things that we've seen in that state is the libertarian candidate running. And I have a lot of principles in common with libertarians, but 
when they're running in elections, I think they need to be selective because sometimes they can defeat somebody who is much more in accordance with their views than the person who ends up getting elected. And it appears that the libertarian candidate in Georgia has received enough votes that if all of those votes had gone to Herschel Walker, not necessarily that they all would have, but if they all had, that might have put him over the top. It's interesting, in Arizona, you also had a libertarian candidate for the Senate there who was running a fairly strong race for a third party, but a few days before the election, he announced that he was withdrawing and he asked his supporters to support the Republican Blake Masters. I think that he still did get some votes, but that was, I think, a very good move on his part. There are other states, for example, here in Alabama, we have a few races where a in local races here where a Democrat judge or sheriff was unopposed except for the Libertarian running against him. And so that gave an alternative than to vote for the Democrats. But at any rate, so that's the situation with the Senate. And as it is right now, we have a, I think, a guarantee as of this point, the Republicans are going to have at least 48, probably 49. And it could be as high as 50, could be as high as 51 or 52. But it's also possible that it could be still 49. And at any rate, even if it's 50-50, that'll stay the way it is. And if so, then Kamala Harris, the vice president, will cast the deciding vote. Now, another interesting situation here that is going on is in Alaska. And Alaska has a very unusual voting system. I'm not going to call it strange. I'm just going to say that it's different. And they've enacted this system fairly recently where they call it ranked choice voting. And in the general election, you will not only vote for a candidate, but then you will say, this would have been my second choice, this would have been my third choice, this would have been my fourth choice. And anyway, and then I'm not exactly sure how all of this works, but if nobody gets a majority, then the second ranked choice starts counting third and so on. And here's the way it is right now. Alaska is going to have a Republican senator. But it could be the incumbent, Senator Lisa Murkowski. She's been there for quite a few terms now. And part of the reason she is there is that her father was one of the founders of the Alaska Republican Party and was Mr. Republican of Alaska almost from statehood. And so she was chosen as his daughter to replace him. And she has not been a conservative. She's been, well, not as liberal as Collins of Maine, but she's been a moderate, probably more, let's put it this way, more liberal than Romney, less liberal than, than <laughs> Collins. But anyway, she is opposed. One of her opponents is a Trump-endorsed Republican, and this Trump endorsed Republican right now, the last I saw the count was something like she had 44% to Murkowski's 42. 
And I'm not sure whether that is counted, counting the tabulations of second and subsequent choices or not. But at any rate, if it turns out that Murkowski is defeated by this Trump conservative, then the seat will stay Republican, but it'll be a more reliable Republican than we had before. Another situation in Ohio, Senator Portman, who has been kind of a moderate Republican, did not run for re-election, and J.D. Vance, who seems to be a pretty solid conservative and was endorsed by Trump, has been elected to replace him. So this means that the seat will stay Republican, but it also means that the voting record of the person holding that seat is going to be more Republican or more conservative than it was before. And so we could count those as somewhat of gains as well. Anyway, we still have races undecided, and at least one of them probably isn't going to be decided until December. But control of the Senate is still up for grabs, and it's possible at this point that Republicans still could gain control of the Senate. Now, you look to the House, of course, we elect our House members every two years, and so all House seats are up for re-election, or 435, meaning it takes 218 to win a majority. Now, the last I checked, and of course, we are recording this on Wednesday and at 11 o'clock Mountain Time, the last I checked, which was about an hour ago, needing 218 for a majority, Republicans had 203. Democrats had 175, meaning that of the 60-some seats up for grabs yet that still haven't been decided, well, Republicans would have to, out of those 60-some seats, Republicans would have to get 15 of those to have a majority. Democrats would have to get 43 to have a majority. So it, it looks very likely that Republicans are going to gain control of the House, and that is very important. Because if they do, then they will elect the Speaker of the House, who is third in line for the presidency after the president and vice president. And their person will be the majority leader, the majority whip. They will have the committee chairmanships of all of the House committees. And a committee chairman has a lot of power to decide whether a bill is going to come before the Congress for a vote or, not, or before the committee, and likewise, therefore, before the county for a vote. Anyway, so it's looking like Republicans are going to do well in the House. In fact, as I say, with 203 Republicans and 175 Democrats, if we took those, I believe it was 60 or 58 remaining seats, if we took those 58 remaining seats and divided them in half, say half of them go Republican, half of them go Democrat, Republicans would have 232, Democrats would have only 204. And so that's a lot better margin for Republicans right now than Demo or in the new Congress than Democrats have had in the current con Congress. Anyways, so I wouldn't call this a Republican defeat by any means. I'd call it a moderate Republican victory. But it wasn't the Republican sweep that many were hoping for. You look to governor races, and here again, we've got some that were undecided. But you have to remember that 
We have 50 governors in this state, in this country. 28 of them are held by Republicans, 22 by Democrats. Now, not every state elects a governor every two years. So this year we had 36 governors up for re-election, or I should say governor's seats up for election, some of which were held by incumbents running for re-election, some were being vacant. So far, now I guess we have to mention one thing else. Out of these 36 that are up for election this time, 19 of those seats are held by Republicans. 17 are held by Democrats. Okay, so how is that going? As of right now, Republicans have won 24 of those seats. Democrats have won 21 of those seats. Remember, right now, they hold 22, and they won 21. There we have undecided seats there in Alaska, and it looks like the Republican governor, well, right now, he is running at 52%, but if he falls to less than a majority, then all these secondary votes will kick in and, and things like that. But anyway, so we still have that race to consider. And then in Oregon, it appears that Republicans are gaining in some of the later tallies here. And likewise, in Arizona, Carrie Lake, well, by last count, she was about 12,000 votes behind. She is narrowing the margin and looks like a chance there. Kansas, also a chance. Anyway, so it could be that this election will turn out to be a draw, that Republicans will keep their 28 and Democrats will keep their 22. More likely, Republicans will have maybe 26 or 27, Democrats 23 or 24. But at any rate, Again, you wouldn't call that a defeat, but not a Republican wave. One of the things that will be interesting to find out, and I've been trying to find some on this, and there's not a lot of reporting on this yet. We don't really have some clear results on this, but one thing that is very important is state legislatures. Who is winning these state legislature races? And anyway, don't know the answer to that. In a number of states, on each side, there is what we call a, here's an interesting term, trifecta. You know what a trifecta is? I only know it involves three things. <laughs> yeah. But I well, couldn't tell you what they are. <laughs> means that one party has, well, no. Well, it means one party has control of the governorship and both houses of the legislature. If they have the governor, and both houses of the legislature, they can get things passed and they'll be signed by the governor most of the time. But it means they have pretty effective control of the state. And anyway, there is one state that it appears has moved toward a Democrat trifecta, that being Minnesota. In Minnesota, you had the Republicans in control of one house of Congress. It appears the Democrats will have both houses plus the the governor after this election. So some gain there. And we are back. 
This is Constitution Classroom on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. We're with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, I'm appreciating your, your breakdown of uh, some of the outcome of yesterday's uh, midterm elections. And it's, it's a little frustrating. There's still a lot that's, that's kind of up in the air. But uh, I think I would agree with, with your assessment that it's, it's more or less a draw. Haven't, we don't see anything, any drastic swing one way or the other. It wasn't just candidates, though, that voters were being asked to, to throw their support either behind or against. What, uh, what are some of the referenda that were, were on the ballots yesterday? Well, there were a number of referenda. And here in Alabama, for example, we had to vote on a what we call a recompiled constitution. Now, I'm not going to talk much about this because this isn't of much interest to anybody outside Alabama, but most states, when they amend their constitution, they take the amended language, they put that into the constitution, and then they take out the language that it replaced. In Alabama, what we've done is when we amend our constitution, as we often do, we keep the language of the original in place and just add the amended language at the end, which is one of the reasons our Constitution is so long. Anyway, there had been a legislative project to recompile the Constitution, take out the language that had been replaced, and put in the language that had been put in there by the various constitutional amendments over the last 120 years since the Alabama Constitution in 1901 was adopted. And so there was a vote of the people then as to whether this recompiled constitution should be adopted. It passed, and there were 10 amendments, none of which are really any particular interest to anybody outside Alabama. They passed. My general rule when I'm asked to vote on a state constitutional amendment is my default position is no. And I will vote yes only under two conditions. One, you convince me that there is a need for this amendment. And two, you convince me that you have no ulterior motive and there's no danger to come out of this amendment. Anyway, the amendments passed and I voted against almost all of them actually. But again, I'm not heartbroken that they passed. But anyway, a lot of states will have amendments like that that will apply only to their states. But there are some that are of nationwide interest. And of course, probably the ones that have attracted the greatest interest have been on the issue of abortion. And remember that the Supreme Court in the Dobbs versus Jackson decision said that there is no federal constitutional right to abortion. And so They said it is therefore up to the states to decide whether to make abortion legal or make it illegal or make it legal under some circumstances and not under others. And so as states vote on this, they're doing exactly what the Supreme Court said is the proper role of the states. But having said that, I have to add that I am disappointed in the way these referenda have gone. There have been referenda that would make abortion legal in California. Basically, it is legal already in these states, but this would just establish either by statute or by state constitutional provision that it is a right. And referenda that would legalize abortion and protect the abortion right passed in California 
passed in Michigan, passed in Vermont. Now, all three of those are, two of those at least, are liberal states, and Michigan is a state that kind of leans liberal. But the Michigan measure was especially dangerous. Not only did it legalize abortion, but it also went to, so far as to provide that doctors may perform transgender surgeries on children and so on like that. And it really went a long way to not only advance transgender rights, but also to, in, as I read it at least, to infringe upon parental rights. It passed fairly narrowly, like something like 53, 55%, something like that, but it did pass. Then we have two other states where there were amendments that would have the effect of restricting abortion. In Kentucky, for example, which is generally a pretty conservative state in Kentucky, there was an amendment to the state constitution that would say nothing in this state constitution may be interpreted as protecting a right to abortion. And as of the last count that I saw, this was failing with about 52% of the vote against it. And then you also had in Montana a proposal in Montana to do something quite similar. And there were quite a few votes left to be counted in Montana, but it appeared to be losing by a very narrow margin, something like 50.4% or something like that in Montana as well. And anyway, so if those results hold up, then in all five of these states, we've seen quite a defeat for the pro-life position. Now, why this is the case, it's hard to say. It seems like a growing consensus of people, according to polls, say that they believe that that unborn child is a living human being and that abortion should be allowed only in extreme circumstances, rape, incest, and so on. And yet, at the polls, the abortion forces seem to be winning. Part of it is, I think, the pro-abortion people, and again, I will not use the term pro-choice because the baby doesn't get a choice, but pro-abortion people, I think, have been lying about the Dobbs decision, which is one of the reasons that there has been widespread disapproval of the Dobbs decision. People have been saying that what the Supreme Court did last June was they made abortion legal everywhere. They took away everybody's abortion rights. Well, that is sheer nonsense. But at any rate, people are believing that, and I think that's being reflected in the polls. But it demonstrates that those of us who are pro-life still have a big job ahead of us convincing not only is this child a living human being, but the child's life needs protection and is deserving of legal protection. Well, we had another interesting thing too, and this was a Arkansas referendum. And the referendum in Arkansas was on what is called a religious freedom reformation or, or restoration amendment. You may recall that back around 1990, the Supreme Court, the Oregon versus Smith decision held that the right to free exercise of religion under most circumstances 
only needs a rational basis in order to justify infringing upon it, unlike free speech, which you can't infringe upon free speech without showing a compelling interest that cannot be achieved by less restrictive means. And as a result of this, many states have adopted these religious freedom restoration acts or amendments that provide that whenever there's a substantial burden on somebody's religious convictions, it can be justified only by a compelling interest that cannot be achieved by less restrictive means. Well, there was a proposal to amend the Arkansas Constitution to include that language. And at last count, with more votes yet to be counted, it was going down with 50.4% of the population voting no. Now, Arkansas had had a number of constitutional amendments that were on the ballot as well, and all of these failed by much greater margins than this. When you have a lot of constitutional amendments, a lot of people just automatically vote no to all of them, and sometimes they don't really understand what they're all about. Another thing that probably made this confusing in Arkansas is Arkansas already had a statute, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, and so what they were trying to put on the Constitution was already in statute. And so that raises, and if it's in statute, why do we need it in the Constitution? But at any rate, I would like to have seen that passed, and it appears right now it did not pass. And then one more issue that I think is of widespread interest that was on the ballot in some five states, and that was concerning the legalization of marijuana. Now, proposals to legalize marijuana passed by pretty substantial margin in Maryland, passed by a rather close margin in Missouri, but were defeated in Arkansas, in South Dakota, and in North Dakota. And so a mixed verdict on the legalization of marijuana. Now, Again, the exact wording of the proposal there may be different. And some of them, it said that you could have it for, you could grow it for personal use, but you couldn't sell it. And a number of them may be limited to medical use and so on. But the thing that I think people fail to consider on this is that marijuana today, what is being sold today is cannabis is far different from what it was a generation or so ago. It's about 10 times more powerful, much more addictive, much more likely to lead to crime in order to get the money to obtain marijuana, much more likely to lead to getting going into other drugs. The high you get off marijuana, eventually it's only going to be supplied by something heavier than marijuana. Anyway, the point being that mixed verdict here, but I really think a lot of people are favoring the legalization of marijuana without really realizing what marijuana really is today. It's a lot more dangerous than it was a generation or so ago. Anyway, so those are some of the things that have been going on with the election. And again, we're still watching, we're still waiting to see what happens. But let me add something else now, and that's that 
You talk about that snapshot when the lights go on, you see how things have moved in the last two years since the last election. You would indicate that things haven't moved a great deal. Even though a lot has happened. 2020 just seems like an eternity ago, doesn't it? All the things that have happened since that time, election contests and January 6th and Afghanistan and inflation and all these other things that have been going on in this country, the instability in our stock market, all these things. And yet, it really seems that not a whole lot has changed as to election results. Well, one of the things that I think probably we need to assess here is, are we getting our message across? And I'm going to suggest several things that we probably need to do in trying to get our message across here. And first of these I'm going to suggest is, what does it take to convince people that they should support a certain candidate? We think that just because Biden right now is unpopular, that means people are going to go out and vote Republican. Not necessarily. Because each of these candidates who is running is an individual. And they're going to vote based on the individual. And people don't always vote on ideology or on a candidate's stand on the issues. Those are important. One thing that really struck home with me several years ago, I was speaking, I think it was probably about 2000. 17 or thereabouts, I was speaking in Michigan to a conservative group in Michigan. And anyway, one of the speakers there was doing an analysis of the 2000, I'm sorry, it must have been earlier than that because it was an analysis of the 2012 election, the election in which Barack Obama was reelected, defeating Mitt Romney. And anyway, this one person said that talked about a study that had been done. And a large number of voters were asked between Obama and Romney, which of these candidates do you think is better qualified to handle foreign policy? And a pretty strong majority said Romney. Which do you think is better qualified to handle the economy? And a strong majority said Romney. Which do you think is a person of greater integrity? Majority said Romney. But then they asked the question, which candidate do you think understands your situation and empathizes with you better? And there a strong majority said Obama. And Obama won the election. I think Republicans have presented candidates here that understand the economy, understand defense, understand the issues, and take positions on those issues that are more in touch with the voters' positions than those that the Democrats are taking today. But are they candidates that people identify with? Candidates that people think they, that empathize with them? I'm thinking particularly of the presidential, or rather the senatorial race there in 
in, in Pennsylvania, Dr. Oz and Fetterman, Dr. Oz, TV star, articulate, good looking, but comes across as a rich doctor. Fetterman, who knows what Fetterman comes across as, <laughs> but less articulate, but had a stroke and had trouble expressing himself. I think Democrats were able to play on that. And I think that Fetterman probably benefited from a sympathy vote. Here is a guy who was recovering from a stroke, and it came at a most unfortunate time right during the campaign, but he is getting better, and he'll be better still by January. And I think that Republicans probably made too much of a mistake of ridiculing yes, ridiculing him. There's a new word, criticize and ridicule, ridiculing. We got to coin that term, but ridiculing him. And as a result, I think it resulted in a backlash wave of sympathy for him. And I think in a lot of these races, Republicans presented candidates that seemed qualified, articulate, held positions that were more in touch with those of the people, but the voters did not identify with them as persons and didn't feel like those candidates identified with them. And ultimately, that's something we need to learn. Where does President Trump fit into all of this? Well, when President Trump was elected in 2016, there were a lot of people at that time who thought that Trump could really identify with him. Yes, he's a super rich guy. But well, one thing I thought really helped Trump in that election was his son, Donald Jr. Donald Jr. gave a speech at the convention, as did all of Trump's kids. And I think that the public that was watching the convention came out saying, well, he has some pretty sharp kids there, and he's done a good job of raising them, in contrast to Hunter Biden. But at any rate, Donald Trump Jr. said, we are the only children of billionaires who are just as comfortable operating a caterpillar as we are driving our own cars. As he's saying, our dad made us learn the ropes. He made us learn how to work. And we can work out there in construction and do things like others and help to paint Trump as, yes, a rich guy, but as a rich guy that can identify with people. And as a result, I think Trump started a realignment. I'm not sure whether possibly this last election may have retarded that realignment, but the old link that had existed for a long time, probably since the founding of the Republican Party, between big business and the Republican Party is no longer there. Big business isn't reliably Republican anymore, just as they haven't been reliably conservative for a long time. For one thing, big business is heavily subsidized by government, heavily regulated by government, and does a lot of business with government, so it's dependent on government. And then you take these big businesses where you have somebody who has just worked his head off to 
build a business and has risen up to the top level with that business, now that he's ready to retire, what does he do? Takes his kids and sends them off to Harvard Business School where they learn socialism and guilt. And they come back to take over the company and they don't have the same conservative principles that their father might have had. And so business is no longer reliably conservative or reliably Republican. That alliance has been broken. And in fact, woke corporations are some of the worst enemies we have. And yet at the same time, you have people that identified with Trump, people that are working class people, maybe belong to a labor union, maybe are a little uncomfortable thinking of themselves as Republican, but they're patriots, they've served in the military, they're good workers, they've worked a job and maybe an extra job so they have enough money to buy a house for their family or put their kids through college and so on. And these are the kinds of voters that Trump was able to identify with and bring into the Republican Party. And I think Trump in the process began the process of building a new coalition that will be a better coalition than the ones that conservatives had before. Another thing that Trump did is he seemed to make some great gains in bringing Hispanics into the Republican Party, recognizing that Hispanics hold quite a few conservative values, the value of work, the value of family, religion, and so on. And whether that is going to continue, I can only say I hope so. And whether this last election indicates that that may have abated somewhat, it's going to take further analysis to know the answer to that. But I'm thinking, for example, of Maya Flores, the Hispanic woman who was elected on the border in a special election not very long ago. Unfortunately, from what I understand, she was not reelected this time. She was defeated by a former congressman there, Gonzalez, a very well-connected Democrat. And so whether that is just an isolated instance or whether that might indicate that that trend has ebbed, I don't know. Another thing Trump did is he brought a lot of blacks, particularly black males, into the Republican Party, or at least where they're of the coming to believe that I could pull the Republican lever and not be struck by lightning. <laughs> and whether that's going to continue again, we're going to have to see. But what is what has Trump done for this last election? Now, we're going to have to really think about that and think about it carefully. And I certainly don't like to tear down people who have done things for the conservative cause. And Donald Trump has certainly done a lot. I can't think of a president who accomplished more in four years for conservative principles than Donald Trump did. The decisions we've had from the Supreme Court have been largely because of three conservative justices that Donald Trump appointed. Anyway, one problem though in this last election is Donald Trump endorsed quite a number of candidates in primaries 
And from what I could tell, these endorsements were based not so much on their conservatism as upon their personal loyalty to him. Some of those, I think, have been candidates that may not have been the best choice, either from a conservative standpoint or from the standpoint as to who could be most electable in November. And we've seen several of these that were Trump-endorsed that did not win the election, or at least have not won so far. Anyway, those are things to think about. Thank you.